Welcome to episode 5 of the Beyond the Lectern podcast. I'm Jason Lodge. And I'm Rachel Searston. In this episode, we spoke to Professor Elizabeth Malloy. Liz is Professor of Work Integrated Learning in the Department of Medical Education in the Melbourne Medical School at the University of Melbourne. And we chatted about assessment design, and so I'm very excited to present our conversation with Liz. Liz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, what we might do is start off by uh, asking you to give us a bit of a sense of how you got into this area of uh, assessment and feedback. There's obviously a lot of work that you've done in this area. Um, where did your interest come from in this and, and how have you got to the point where you are now where you're looking quite deeply at these issues? Yeah, um, so I suppose my interest uh, arose not not through an academic interest to start with, but um, through my um, athletics career. So um, I was a track and field athlete and had a coach who was um, very good and very detailed at giving feedback. And this coach actually had a photographic memory. So he'd watch you run and then he'd ask you to, to talk about what you did well and what you'd improve on. And then he'd basically almost download a video in his mind and talk through the, the aspects of, of running that you could improve on. So that was sort of my, my grassroots experience of feedback. Uh, then I enrolled in a physiotherapy degree here at University of Melbourne um, and I was really surprised at the variability in quality of feedback and assessment. So some people were very detailed and the, the information was meaningful, you could grab it and do something with it and there were other episodes where I just felt like that, that data was lacking. So um, that really led me to doing a PhD after I graduated looking at feedback in the workplace and particularly in the health healthcare workplace which is my clinical background and again I was sort of staggered by that data that showed that when people are engaged in feedback conversations about their performance the learner has very little um, input into that discussion so my PhD results showed that learners spoke for less than five percent of the discussion and that's in the same data set where both the learners and the teachers said we do two-way conversational feedback so there was this real notion of, of what we think we do is quite different to what we do in educational practice, and that's not necessarily with an intention to deceive. It's this sort of part of being human and perhaps our, our inherent lack of insight. So um, that was really the, the genesis of the interest, and I suppose over the last 14 years or so I've, I've looked at um, feedback and assessment design in the broader higher education context, and I'm really interested in... The, if you like, the sort of cultural differences in design of feedback and assessment based on, on disciplines. The, the track and field example you gave is just beautiful, I think, in, in terms of thinking about assessment and feedback as two very related concepts. And the way you've described it is this organic process of, of getting an idea of how you perform, checking your performance uh, and then using that check to then you know, advance your performance even further or change or improve your performance even further. But in education, traditionally, you know, when you're sitting in a lecture or you're completing a, you know, an entire program or degree, um, assessment is usually, usually has a different bent. It's, it's on assessing how students have performed in order for them to gain a qualification. Yeah, look, I think without a doubt, I think that assessment in higher education is often framed as that um, big MCQ exam at the end of semester. Students look at their mark, um, they might not you know, do anything with it. So it's this idea about almost sort of a retrospective tack-on component. Um, and it's seen around certification or stratifying students' performance as opposed to this idea of assessment driving learning. 
So, um, I mean, of course, the, the last 10 years we've seen a big movement around um, sustainable assessment and David Bowd's sort of seminal 2000, um, year 2000 paper around sustainable assessment, I think, has been trying to sort of um, break into pierce that bubble of, of assessment being this sort of end of semester type activity. But, you know, and I think there's a lot of baggage around the word assessment. We carry that from our primary school days, our secondary school days. We're very concerned about being rated against our peers and will we make the grade and will we be able to become that surgeon? So, yeah, and I think it's worth us examining, well, what are the purposes of, of assessment? Because sometimes it is around being safe enough to practice in certain high-stakes fields. So it is around certification or accreditation, but it's also about accelerating performance and learning and and I'm really interested in well, what can we do in terms of designing activities that are going to have an effect. I suppose the term assessment as well is quite nebulous as you're saying that you know people have very different views about what assessment is and what it could be used for. Can you give us a sense first of all before we delve into the mechanisms of how we can use feedback the kinds of views that people have um, of feedback and that can give us a sense of that variation yeah. yeah, I mean, I think certainly um, a lot of people, I think, see feedback as holding up a mirror to your mm. performance, whereas um, I suppose the definition of feedback we write about is that feedback is a process, so it's extended over time um, and that it's, it's learner-centred, so it's not about someone telling you or the mirror telling you what you did, it's actually this sort of co-constructed sense of well, how did I go relative to what I wanted to achieve so it implies that there's always a, a standard that you're comparing your performance to and then that it has an effect so there's some sort of output that based on this incoming data that you're going to do something with it and change the way you tackle the next task or the next performance or you know the next um, audition for drama so it's it's that idea about feedback has both an input and an output which is not novel I mean this is this is the very genesis of feedback if you look at the roots of feedback in engineering and biology that's that's the idea that you you regulate your pH and your body or your temperature um, through both an input and an output but in education we seem to have have lost that sort of the very roots of feedback and we're, we're really about just feedback being input to the learner. So thinking about this whole situation holistically, let's let's get into the, the aspects of this where it seems to be going wrong. So we've talked a little bit about how it all, it all seems to not quite be working right. Um, so if we think about assessment and feedback and we look at it and look across the sector in terms of the, the things that we understand about both teaching practice and what students tell us. Yeah. These are often some of the most problematic parts of, of teaching practice. So why do you think that is? What, what's, what's going on here? Where's it all falling down? So, you know, I mean, we, without a doubt, it is the most problematic, um, certainly feedback and assessments, the most problematic component. And I think universities are throwing a whole lot of money and resources and time into trying to in, improve this problem. And I think essentially students you know there's a there's aligning expectations but there's also this idea that students aren't getting the information that's meaningful for them so that they can change subsequent practice and you know the the mere timing of assessment and feedback is a key example if if you set an assignment for students and you give them feedback on that assignment 3 days before the end of semester before they pack their bags up and go on holiday they can't do anything with that information and obviously that's why we have policy and we have guidelines around marking turnaround time, not because 
that's what we do around here, but that's around that idea of give students information in time so that they can actually do something with that and, and change their subsequent task performance. So do you think that there's an element of this that's also about um, assessment just being a really hard thing for people to design effectively? I mean, that it's so if you look at a, a really large first year class, for example, you've got a thousand students and, and you need right. to assess them in some meaningful way. It's really hard to come up with something that doesn't look like a multiple choice quiz. Exactly. Is that a big part of this is that it's just this notion that uh, it's really hard to develop the kinds of skills that we need to have to, to come up with really effective assessment tasks. Yeah, I think I think you're exactly right. I think it's it's sticky, it's tricky, um, it's very contextually bound, <clears throat> and you are constrained. You know, in big biomedical science units, as you said, you might have a thousand people enrolled in that class, and you just quite simply can't set you know, a 4,000 word assignment that you're going to provide detailed feedback on for, for that number of students and, and expect that you're going to tailor that information to each student. So, yeah, I, I think there are pragmatic constraints. I think there are historical constraints about we have a certain... We've been socialised to think assessment means a certain thing. And if, you know, you get an appointment at a university as a teacher, that's your, your view of assessment. And often we're inheriting people's assessment tasks from previous iterations and I think certainly a study we did which was um, sponsored by the Office of Learning and Teaching when we interviewed uh, Chalkface academics about their assessment practices the academics that felt that they had autonomy and felt that they could really design exciting assessment were people that had new units or brand new courses where they had a clean slate and they could think about constructive alignment what did they want the assessment to achieve which is quite different if you come in at the start of semester, even if you've got great ideals, you, you know, you're actually bound to enacting assessment in certain ways because of our, our policies and, and procedures. So there is that. And I think even, even when we have, even when we run a unit and we think about changes and we, get, we seek feedback from students about how we could better change the assessment and the teaching of that unit, we're all bound by time constraints. And we've often got you know, the, the best ideals don't often get enacted in practice just because of the, the pragmatics of time restraints. Pragmatic constraints aside, one of the things that you have chatted about is how often you can change the minds of university teachers about closing that feedback loop, as you describe, about designing assessment for learning. You can change their minds, you can convince people that, that we can actually use assessment in far better ways than what we're doing. But that does, often doesn't translate into their actual practices. What are some what are some strategies or, or ways that we could bridge that gap, I guess, between you know, people thinking about good assessment and people actually designing and delivering good assessment? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think um, you know professional development is obviously a, a key one. So whether it be a podcast, um, you're doing your grad cert in academic practice or, or university teaching. There's no doubt that being exposed to theory and formal frameworks, it, it may validate what you're already doing, but it also might give you good ideas and confidence to enact these good ideas. I think what is interesting, the, the OLT-based study that, I'm, that I referred to before, when we interviewed academics that did try innovative practices, it was more around who they were sitting next to in the office and who had just been to an early conference in Spain and, and had this good idea, or who was using certain technology, who could actually show the other staff member how to use that technology, and therefore they had the confidence to rewrite their assessment processes. 
So, so it's formal professional development channels, but I think it's about good ideas and having the time to sit down and discuss that uh, with colleagues. So there's sort of the informal fertilisation, I think, is really underrated in, in yeah. universities. It's, it sounds like you're also almost describing a, a champion or a mentorship model as well, where you have you know, people within a, a school or a department or a centre who are doing innovative things and have a, you know, a good model or exemplar for how to design good assessment and then other people follow. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I think the other thing is leadership within within departments. And this, again, was a really strong part of, um, of our study, which we've published. And that is that academics talked about pitching their ideas to the head of department and and justifying and saying, well, I know this is going to be resource intensive, but we're going to save time down the track because, you know, the marking will be automated or we'll do team teaching. And so um, they talked a lot about this sort of persuasive rationale and actually having to pitch the idea up above. And if they had a, a leader that was open to those ideas, then they could enact really good change. I guess that can also be really tricky because for a lot of people, understanding the sort of deeper level theoretical aspects of all of this um, can be some can be quite a lot of work to get your head around. So I know that when I initially moved across from thinking about, you know, just experimental psychology into higher education, assessment was one of the areas that I really got kind of stuck on for this reason, because I kind of had this notion, oh yeah, yeah, we can do all of these neat things that might be a slightly different way of doing an essay or a lab report or whatever it might be. Mm. But then when I started to try and understand some of the theory underneath that, it got, I found it really dense and really difficult to get my head around and it took a really long time. So I think of all of the areas of practice that I've been interested in in higher ed assessments the one that that I found probably most difficult Mm. and I think it is because there are so many different things that you're trying to juggle in this situation and then when you start to think about well okay what's the theory and the evidence underneath this it just opened up this enormous area of of research and I wasn't quite sure how to to navigate it so when I was trying to make a case to you know heads of school and and people like that to say we want to try this assessment I wasn't clear on the kind of evidence and theory that I that I needed to mm. have in place to be able to make the argument for that is that do you think that's a common thing that absolutely yeah I think it's a, a real tension and and I think it's it's not just um, you know located in assessment I think in in teaching and learning full stop I think there's that real tension between what can you do on the ground and and the theory behind that um, you know, and sometimes you, you you got to almost cut to the doing and roll up your sleeves and do things, and you know sometimes retrospectively think about well, what is the theory behind that? Other people are more sequential in their thought and think, well, I'm going to use a constructivist mode of thinking about learning and teaching and assessment, and and think about learner self-assessing and 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 build it that way. So I think I think both theory and it's important to have the theoretical understanding, but I think. You don't want to be so, as you said, bogged down and overwhelmed. You've got to find a way to, to, to cut through that. Since we're talking about how to constructively align and, and how to align your, uh, your teaching practice with theory, what are some of the nuts and bolts of what assessment for learning looks like? Well, I think one of the key things around assessment for learning is that idea around student or learner literacy in assessment and actually getting them to understand that again this is not something you're subjected to as a student but in fact as a learner 
um, you know, assessment is a tool that you can use to help drive your learning. So even just being really overt about mm. this is actually the intention behind assessment. It's, it's not yeah. about getting you up against a wall and punishing you. Yeah. So um, quizzing yourself or flashcards or those are kinds of assessment strategies. That absolutely, you can use. yeah. So I think self-assessment is, is probably yeah. one of the key and um, key components to, to sustainable assessment. Um, and it is that idea about... By, by virtue of assessing your own performance, you're really engaging with the standards of performance. And there's some really good examples of teachers that have introduced a self-assessment component to assignments, mm. and they find as, as soon as they do that, the quality of assignment just goes up and skyrockets. So you know, students will refine their work in order to fill out that self-assessment rubric um, because they're starting to think about, oh, I'm actually not meeting those, those certain um, components in the rubric. So I think that's, that's one thing. Self-assessment is really strong, and I think um, across the faculties here at uh, the University of Melbourne, we're seeing some really strong examples of how to incorporate that and how to convince students that it's worthwhile self-assessing. And we see it in um, PhD students as well. I, I, wouldn't, uh, I ask my students if they send me a piece of work to actually signpost these are the aspects of the work that I'm concerned about and that helps to hone my analytical gaze in, in reading that particular work. It doesn't mean that I won't comment on different aspects of the work but it does tap me into the concern of the learner. I think the other thing about this idea about assessment for learning is to get the students to start to navigate the different sources of information that can give them feedback on, on their performance. So. A study that we're doing at the moment, which Michael Henderson from Monash University is leading, that particular study is really highlighting that, in fact, before students submit an assignment, for example, they are naturally or organically seeking feedback, maybe from a parent around their grammar, um, from a student who's done a similar assignment. So, in fact, we're wanting to promote this. This is about, this is sort of fitness for life that if we've got a certain task to do, we'll ask different people for information in order to refine that subsequent piece of work. So we know it's already happening, but I think part of assessment literacy is to highlight that to students to actually unearth that we want you to be seeking information from different sources, and that's going to ultimately give you different perspectives and hopefully sharpen up that particular product. Well, I guess ultimately a lot of this is about getting them into a position where they can start to make decisions about how they're progressing themselves. That's because exactly. ultimately they're not going to be in a situation where they're going to get formal feedback once they leave the university, mm. for most of them. That's exactly right, yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, Jason, you've been involved in, in writing um, in this, this book that David Bowd and colleagues are editing called Evaluative Judgment. And that very notion of evaluative judgment is about... Not, on, not only understanding the quality of your own work, but also the quality of, of other people's work. And that's really about, as you said, self-regulation. Because out there in the workplace, some people are lucky enough to go through postgraduate supervision programs where they do get more overt, I suppose, informal assessment on their performance. But, but most of us are out there sort of swimming and self-assessing self and if we can start calibrating our own judgment yeah. the earlier the better so is one of the learning goals then of assessment in your view transfer to those you know out of university contexts? absolutely yep yep so the idea of um i suppose the sustainable assessment notion is that that you're assessing beyond that task you're trying to generate capabilities not just to produce that piece of music but 
to better produce subsequent pieces of music or, or, or products of work. It, it almost seems like a lot of this, and I think this is partly also within the, the student realm and also for, for our colleagues who are thinking about assessment themselves, a lot of it seems to be about consciousness raising. So, you know, mm. as a student, I might go through this process of, of filling out an exam or, or completing a particular task, but I'm not necessarily thinking metacognitively about the sorts of decisions and judgments that I'm making as I go. That's and I guess right. on, on the other side is that um, for a lot of us who don't necessarily have a background in education and we find ourselves teaching in higher education, we might just say, oh, you know, when I was an undergraduate, we did lab reports, so therefore we're just going to do lab reports. That's right. So that, that again, that decision-making process is kind of almost unconscious. So it's it sounds like a common theme here is that really a lot of this is about saying, well, okay, let's step back for a second and That's think right. very carefully about what it is we're actually doing here and then we might be able to change it or get more out of it. And... Exactly right. So it is, I think, spot on. It's, it's about reflective practice and we need to cleave off time in order to do this reflection and I do think you know the framework we developed around assessment decisions um, it has got different probes that uh, and I'm not saying that's the be and you know it's it's not the panacea but um, it does give you a prompt to think about different aspects of assessment that you might not be consciously thinking of. So it gives you a hook, I suppose, to ha start having these conversations with yourself or with colleagues about how you might do things better. The way you're brought up or socialised in assessment, I mean, we, had, we interviewed people from the biomedical sciences who said, you know, we dared to challenge the culture and we've actually incorporated an essay in our range of assessment tasks and it's worth two and a half percent yeah. and you think oh well that's what sort of message is that giving to students about the capabilities that are involved in writing that essay so you know I, I think we we have to really be reflective about the sort of environment um that we've that we've been taught in and you know and sometimes that's entirely appropriate but it we sometimes want to shake things up and I think that's yeah. where formal formal frameworks give us those sort of cues to, to reflect on our practice. Yeah, I, I think you've, you've partly answered this question but I find it fascinating that as researchers we are often really rigorous and analytic in our research but it kind of falls by the way, wayside when we try and when we venture into teaching. We're less yeah. analytic when it comes to designing our courses and um, our teaching practices. And yeah. that was one of the things that fascinated me about your interviews with the university teachers mm. was that they seem to be following, by and large, that creative process, as you were describing, mm. um, when they were designing their assessment, rather than a more analytic process or following a framework to reflect on why they would be using that particular piece of assessment. That's right. So it was certainly when we asked people about how they made decisions, so decisions around assessment, it, it was more idiosyncratic than we had thought. It, you know, it mm. wasn't, I've done a grad cert and then I use this framework and I use constructive alignment. It, yeah. it was really, Jason um, has got this really good idea and sat down and showed me how I could do it and I was lucky enough that I had enough time to put the paperwork in to get approved and, and voila. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, I mean, I think a lot of education is creative and it's based on our own experience and I think mm. we want to nurture that idea about generation and, and being creative but I suppose having some solid um, theory behind you can strengthen that and, and certainly help you know when it comes to the persuasive sell to heads of school and funding bodies to do good things I think it, it helps in, in terms of rigor of, of your decision making I mean I suppose the, the other thing I would say about that creative process even if you think you have a good idea and you enact it we still like a good researcher we have to be accountable in looking at does that actually work and that's again why 
closing the loop and seeking feedback from the students themselves, both about, you know, do they engage with it, do they like it, but also looking at their quality of work. And if we don't feel like we're hitting the mark, then we need to go back to the drawing board and, and reconsider our assessment designs. One of the things that I got thinking about when I was thinking about uh, assessment for learning was how people operate in teams in this sort of an environment to innovate when it comes to assessment. What's your experience with team-based assessment design and what are the, some of the insights you've gained through that experience? Yeah, I think you know, if you think about the literature around wisdom of crowds, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think whether I think diversity really does enable good designs and good good educational practice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think two two heads are better than one, and often it generates excitement, it generates commitment. With the current feedback project that we're working on at the moment, which is being led by Michael Henderson. We've got some really exciting case studies of where people have used team-based assessment design. And, I mean, one issue is that it can be more resource-intensive. So they talk about having, for example, once they've designed the assessment, they have tutor meetings where they actually bone up on what the assessment task is. They do collective marking. They have exemplars of of good work so they can think about the standards of of the actual task. So I think without without a Mm. doubt that takes planning, it takes a budget, but I think the quality of both the designs but also the, the assessment itself can be much higher. Yeah. I suppose it's fascinating to think about as well from the perspective of training up you know, younger university teachers or people who are just getting their, uh, dipping their toe in the water of university teaching. For them to be able to work in a team of more experienced teachers, it's, you can, I can imagine that would be a powerful learning experience in and of itself. If you're looking to develop expertise in designing assessment, Absolutely. Um, yeah, then working in, in a team could be particularly useful. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, a form of um, apprenticeship sort of style <laughs> yeah. learning. And I think, I mean, the other thing about working within teams, so you might work within a team within a unit or a subject but the idea about working popping your head up lifting your gaze and working with people across faculties I think is really exciting so when you've got people with instructional design expertise you might have um, technology wizards in another faculty and I think sort of joining heads with with those people that maybe think a little bit differently I think that can create really exciting designs so designs come up a few times as part of all of this and you've talked a little bit about this idea that exemplars are really useful for people so apart from the sort of constructive alignment the sort of classic approach is there do you think that there's any particular sort of design approach that that lends itself nicely for people to think systematically about assessment or is it is it more of a horses for courses type thing do you think yeah i mean so i think constructive alignment is probably you know the the most common framework and i think it's a good solid framework to to hinge our practices on you know the the assessment design decisions framework that we came up with that that was empirically derived about actually what people are doing in practice so in a way I think it's a bit more reflective of the stickiness and trickiness of of real practice in higher education and we talk about you know what are the purposes of assessment what's the context so thinking about is this workplace based you know, are you looking at assessing communication skills? So therefore, what type of, what mode of assessment might be most authentic and appropriate if you want to drive those certain behaviours? We look at learner outcomes, what you actually want them to end up with. And we talked about those more lifelong capabilities around employability and self-regulation. We prompt, in that framework, we prompt people to think about the tasks 
themselves and, and, and to try to think outside the box that in science you don't just have to do lab reports. And then we talk about this idea about feedback processes and from what audience will you try to seek information and how will you actually incorporate that into subsequent practice. Um, and that means you need to account for things like timing um, as well as the source of information. And then I think really importantly in, as part of that framework we talk about interactions and exactly what you are talking about before around who do you need to work with in order to get this thing done? Who do you need to convince? How do you need to plan? What sort of paperwork um, will, will get you across the line? And I think the, the, very, the relational components of assessment, like all forms of teaching, I think um, are really key to, to enabling good design. So one of the challenges that I think we face as teachers is overcoming the curse of knowledge. So it's, it's difficult to put yourself in the shoes of of learners who don't have the same experience with the content area that you might have, or don't have the same experience in you know learning in a university setting as you might have, mm. um, and so often I think you can kind of misjudge the knowledge that learners can have, and maybe one way of, of overcoming that challenge is, is providing feedback to teachers themselves about how their assessment is pitched and whether or not it's at the right level. And do you have any suggestions for mechanisms and by which we can provide? feedback to teachers? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the um, seeking feedback from, if you introduce a new design, for example, seeking feedback from the cohort themselves, I think is really important. Um, and not just the formal forms that we give out as, as part of standard unit evaluation, but actually asking people, you might run informal interviews and say, I'm really curious about your response to these particular tasks. And actually, I think that's modelling good reflective practice because you're saying, you know, I really value your opinion and your experience and we're going to use that information to refine what we do for the next cohort. Mm. So I think there's that. But I think also the proof has got to be in the pudding. So I think you need to look at the quality of work. Mm. And if, for example, you set a new type of assignment, which might be a, an advertisement or it might be a, a campaign, to an advocacy campaign to change something in healthcare, you know, you need to look at the quality of that work as well. And if it's not arriving at the, at the sort of standard that you're aiming for, then we've got to look at our own assessment design or, or our own teaching methods and think, well, why haven't we been able to engage students in the way we want to? And I guess that really highlights the fact that the assessment to a large extent works as feedback for us because it gives us a sense of how students are progressing in relation to what we want them to get out of our subjects. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah without a doubt. That's that sort of stock standard accountability as, as a teacher, I think. And, and by doing that, again, we're modelling this idea about assessment for learning. I think it's, it's really key. So, um, and I think what is interesting is, you know, we are, as teachers, we are seeking this information from students, but we're not telling the students why we're doing it or, or what we're actually doing with that information. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if I have a new set of students in our, in our grad set of in clinical education, for example, in the medical school, um, I would say to the students, last year we got this feedback and as a result, we are now you know, using this particular assignment at this time in semester based on that feedback. And all of a sudden they start to feel like, oh, actually feedback has traction and it has meaning. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't also talk about what assessment for learning looks like in online environments or, uh, you know, with, with flipped classroom models and things like that. Does, it, does this conversation change if, as soon as we start to move into those uh, more digital learning environments? 
Yeah, look, I think I mean, we talked earlier about the constraints of large classrooms mm. and, um, and so I think, for example, using keypad technology where you can get mass feedback quickly, um, reflect it back to the learners and they get a sense of what they know and don't know even within the classroom itself, mm. I think there are really exciting affordances um, with technology. Um, Sue Bennett, who's a colleague who's worked on the Assessment Decision Designs project, has written a really nice paper in, um, in BJET around technology and, and assessment and, and sustainable assessment. I think there's quite exciting work. Anna Ryan is a colleague in the School of Medicine who's just done her PhD looking at automated feedback and interestingly as part of MCQ exams. And I think that work is really exciting because um, students are not just getting a mark on their exam, but they're actually getting a breakdown within domains about what their anatomy was like, what their pharmacology was like, and how um, that compares to, the, to the, um, the cohort as well. So you can imagine if you get that sort of nuanced feedback, that's much more likely to guide your study habits than if you just get a, a 78%. Um, sitting there in your inbox so um, I think there's some really that idea about breaking down feedback into domains of knowledge or, or certain areas of, of skill is really exciting because people can actually pick it up and, and use it to guide their behaviours. You mentioned the idea that a lot of people think about this outcome which is x percent whatever it might be and it sort of it, it brings me to this tension about on the one hand we want to do all these great things in terms of assessment and feedback and make sure that students are getting the most out of that as an experience for learning yeah. um, on the one hand and then on the other hand we've got issues around standards and um, you know needing to actually produce a, a mark at the end of this for a student which then relates to issues about people still thinking that you know it all has to appear on a bell curve and all yeah. of these sorts of things so what's your sense of that of that where we are with that tension about um, assessment as this thing for setting standards and you know making sure that we rank students and all of this sort of thing and on the other hand making sure that we have the most effective assessment so that students get what we, we want them to get out of it because mm. um, it strikes me that that's one of the really complicated things that we're we're constantly grappling with that's right I think it is a wrestle and I, I don't see that we're going to resolve it um, in a clear uh, systematic way I think I suppose my thoughts are that it's going back to the purpose of assessment and being clear about that so um, if you're looking at graduating um, a dentist for example you know that they've got to have certain skills in order to be safe with patients with the community so you know I would be wanting them to reach some sort of threshold and and perhaps to have a, a mark that gives them a relative weighting that might also determine what hospitals they're able to work at in those sort of cases you know it's important sometimes to have a, a relative weighting compared to your peers if you're looking at using tasks tasks to drive um, self-regulation for example well maybe maybe marking can be constraining having a, a score so I think it's about what do you want that assessment to do? Um, that's sort of like the, the crux, I think, that needs to underlie our decision-making. I think in, in many ways we can get both uh, the benefit of learning and the benefit of assessment in the, in the way that you're talking about, Jason, by distributing assessment throughout the semester rather than just relying on one high-stakes test. I'm a huge fan of Kevin Ava's work yeah. on the multi-mini interview where, yeah. you know, you would know, as you would know in medicine, the problem is 
in selecting students to go into a, a medical degree, they're all top performers. Mm. So how do you separate them? Mm. And we know that interviews, the standard traditional interview is not particularly effective, but if you take samples of interviews from different interviewing teams and you average over those um, assessments, then mm. you're, you're far more likely to get a more indicative assessment of that particular student's potential or performance. That's right. Do you have any ideas of how we could introduce that into our assessment? Yeah, look, I think um, distributed assessment is really important. Mm. Um, and I think the, I'm thinking about also assessment here in the workplace and that idea about programmatic assessment being really important, almost like uh, gathering pixels to then give you a picture of someone's performance. So I, I really like that in, in notion. I think pragmatically it can be quite tricky because you have to upskill more people mm. to do the assessments. And then, you know, interestingly, they need that information needs to be synthesised somehow and then communicated to the student. And some of the work we're doing at the moment around this idea about distributed or, or programmatic assessment within the workplace shows that the, the lead supervisor might be diligent in collecting a whole lot of data points about a student's performance. But in the end, they actually rely on the raised eyebrows of a known colleague in the corridor more than they do the, this sort of systematic collection of data. So it goes back to that idea that on, on paper something can look fantastic, but in yeah. theory, as humans, we actually synthesise and communicate information quite differently. So we need to think about um, you know, things like the credibility of the source of, of, mm. of the assessor. Um, you know, holds quite a lot of weight for us as humans. Um, so yeah, it, it, in notion I like it, but in, in yeah. practice I think we, we need to be um, quite realistic about the way that we make decisions about people's performance. It, it always strikes me, and this is kind of an assumption that I always, I always seem to have early on when I started looking at assessments and doing a lot of marking, is that um, because you get a mark at the end of it, it almost lures you into thinking, oh, well, this is, you know, a fairly valid piece of, you know, instrument that we're getting a really good sense of the student learning. But it's not like that at all. It's, it's really about us making a, an informed judgment on our content knowledge about the student's progression in relation to some goal. And when mm -hmm. I stop thinking about assessment as being some sort of precision psychometric instrument That's and started true. thinking about it more as a process of attempting to judge students' work relative to some sort of outcome that we're looking for it totally shifted the way i thought about assessment mm. um, i'm not sure if that's a, a normal thing or the fact that i had studied psychometrics previously it kind of lulled me into to thinking about assessment in a way that didn't really fit with with what the purpose of it was yeah it, it's fascinating i mean I, I think again about the example in medicine again around what they call entrustable professional activities and this is the notion that um you think about a task that the student might be able to do and the degree of trust that they can do that independently. So, you know, could I get Jason to under, undertake a certain procedure and I can be at the other side of the bed? Or can I go and have a cup of tea and can Jason report about how he went in that procedure? Or in fact, can I go and do my own patient list and we have a chat at the end of the day? And I think that's sort of a slightly different notion about thinking about what the standard is mm -hmm. and then thinking about the capability of the learner in relation to that yeah. standard. It is true because I can imagine, I mean, if I was, if I only had the goal of improving students' learning, then I would actually make my assessment, you know, fairly challenging. So much so that, you know, so that they can get feedback on the errors that they're, that they're making. 
and, and so much so that that would almost be a disingenuous indication of you know their actual performance if you were to mm. take the raw values of those assessments. And so mm. I can see that it's this is a tricky space you know, mm. um, to be able to get both to, to to strike that balance. I agree, and I think the um, I think one of the trickiest tensions in and this is, I think, more so in workplace-based assessment, whether it be in law or engineering mm. or, or healthcare, um, is that idea that if you're working with a senior colleague who's providing you feedback on performance in order to improve performance, if they are also providing you with, you with a summative mark that might give you membership into a club or not, you know, it's, it's high stakes, mm. then it does, there's no doubt that that interferes with this process of honest performance discussion, self-disclosure, vulnerability that often leads to really exciting learning outcomes. Um, And this is sort of an interest, an area of interest in my study at the moment is thinking about, well, how do we create conditions within these performance-related discussions where people actually do feel it's okay to let it all hang out because that's where the learning's going to be? And, And maybe it's about having different audiences for different purposes. So you might have a a buddy colleague where you can have really honest feedback discussions where the power might be slightly um, less extreme. Um, And then you might have more formal assessments where someone comes in and provides a summative mark. To separate the two entirely. Potentially, potentially. So where are we heading with all this? I mean, there's been sort of some reports in the last couple of years. I, I can think of a couple of examples where there have been particular schools or faculties and even one university comes to mind that said, right, we're just going to ban multiple choice questions. You know, so they've taken this sort of blanket policy approach to trying to drive assessment practice forward. Is that the way to do it? Is it a much more holistic thing? I think part of what we've been reading in some of your work is that obviously the policy settings need to be right. But, but where is it? Have you got a sense of where the sweet spot is between all of these things? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think sweet spot is, is probably the right term. I think um, it needs to be considered and, you know, I, I don't agree with sort of blanket rules of let's get rid of the MCQ or let's make sure turnaround time is 10 days or we all blow up because, <laughs> you know, we need to think about the realities of the world. And, you know, I like this idea about thinking about aspects of assessment and going back to purposes, processes, tasks, what do you want students to come out with? You know, they're quite sensible sort of hooks for us to think about our own assessment practices. So, um, you know, and then if you can bolster that with some formal theory and some training and assessment that gives you the confidence to enact these particular ideas, and then you're curious enough to actually look for the effects of these of these new assessment processes on students, I think in combination that, that could be quite a a powerful mix. Absolutely. And so what are, what are the exciting things in the future in the assessment design space or assessment and feedback space? Um, look, I think without a doubt um, technology is exciting, not just because you've got the tools and let's use what we can use, but I think that idea about providing you know, mass feedback quickly and being able to stratify the feedback based on domains of knowledge, you know, we just didn't have that capacity 10, 15 years ago. So I think you know the sensible, cautious use of technology to enact some of these designs uh, I think is really exciting. You talked about team-based 
assessment and team-based teaching and I, I don't think we do it enough and I, I love the idea about more junior members of staff being involved in the, those teams and, and contributing their ideas but also learning from people who've got more experience. So where can people find out more about what you're working on? So we've covered a lot of ground and you've mentioned a few different projects. Where can people find out more about those? Okay, so I think the, the assessment design decisions framework um, I think is worth looking at um, and that's a, a website so it's assessmentdecisions.org and the work that we're currently doing around um, learning feedback is www.learningfeedback.org and within that second site we've got exemplars of, of sort of feedback designs that people might look at and, and perhaps draw some um, inspiration around those sort of designs. I think the, the work of Anna Ryan um, is exciting here at the University of Melbourne. I love David Bowd's work. Um, I'm, I'm biased, but you know, I think his, his work around sustainable assessment is really exciting. And you know, thinking about those underpinning philosophies about driving self-regulation in learners, and, and he's very conscious to call people learners and not students, because as soon as we call people students, mm. we start to bring ourselves into that baggage of assessment and 78% and That's a good point. turnaround yeah. times and you know these artefacts of yeah. higher education that, that perhaps we take for granted. Yeah. So I think um, the learner, not the student, is, is quite a nice philosophy to hang on to. Yeah. It's also uh, free of the higher education context in many ways as well. You can be a learner in anything. That's yeah. right, in the workplace. Yeah. So is there anything we've missed? We've covered a fair bit of ground in assessment and feedback. Do you think there's anything that, that's really critical that we haven't spoken about that might be good to, to sort of finish on? Um, look, I think the what strikes me from the research we've done around how do teachers make decisions about assessment, both at the design level and, and the enactment and refinement level, I, I do think it's inherently hard. And I think just to acknowledge that is a good start and, and to be reflective about mm. all the contextual factors, whether it be external accreditation bodies, um, time pressures within your department, policy at the university yeah. level. I think being mindful of of those factors as well as the sort of relational interaction sort of um, features that I talked about earlier. I think just just acknowledging those influences I think will make us be more thoughtful in our designs. That's a really good point because it's, it's not like there are bad apples if, in terms of you know, teachers designing terrible assessment. It's more probably more the case that the system could be improved. Uh, anyway, that, That's that right. the teachers are working within. Yeah, and I, look, I think one other exciting area um, for us to study and to think about is this idea about unit coordinators, new unit coordinators coming in and coming in late mm. and inheriting existing um, assessment practices and assessment tasks. Yeah. And I think often we fall into the trap of tweaking and tweaking and tweaking mm. and you end up with a, a product that just is nowhere near your desired um, product. So that idea about um, you know, cleaving off the time to have a whole course review and mm. to think about programmatic assessment rather than these siloed yeah. unit-based assessments, I think there's real merit in. It's like sort of going, stepping back and sharpening the saw and then coming and, and sawing your wood, I think would be much more effective. So I guess one takeaway from this podcast is that um, people should go out and have a chat with other people about what they're doing in assessment. Exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> that's a very good point. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Liz. Pleasure. It was an excellent conversation. Thanks for Cheers. having me. Yeah.